uh, chapter 20 of John, right? You've gone through the scene. Mary shows up, tells you, he's gone, he's gone. And John and Peter, they run. What, what, how would you have felt if you were John and Peter? You show up and there's this empty tomb um, and you're confused. What would you, go ahead and give me some of the answers you guys gave. Scared. Scared. Amazed. Mad. Yeah, yep. Excited, doubtful. Anything else? Confused, absolutely confused, right? Because they don't realize yet that Jesus has been resurrected. We talked about it last week. I mean, in spite of all that he had told them while he was here on earth, it just didn't compute. I mean, he told them he was going to be crucified. He said he was going to rise again on the third day. And I imagine when he said that, they were like, huh, that must be one of those confusing rabbi statements that when we ask him what he means, he looks at us like we're idiots. So we're just going to wait and let that play out, right? Um, But he was clear with them, clear. But then when he actually dies, they are traumatized. They are in utter shock. Um, So much shock that the fact that Jesus was alive, he had risen, it didn't even occur to them yet. They just figured... His body was missing. So let's read on, verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? By the way, I think this might be the only place in scripture where an angel shows up and the people just don't like fall on their face scared to death, right? So Mary's pretty courageous here. Uh, They asked her, woman, why are you crying? She said, They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And then she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means rabbi or teacher. And then Jesus said, don't hold on to me for I've not yet ascended to the father. Go instead. He gives her instructions. Now go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, this is such a remarkable story right here. And I wonder when I read this, like, why did Jesus wait till the boys took off to appear? Like, they've gone back home. Mary Magdalene is still around. She's distraught. But she's the first person that the resurrected Jesus appears to. Now, when we talk about the resurrection, some people understandably have doubts about that. And I don't think that I can, you know dismiss all those doubts for you in in one short talk this morning. Um, But people have trouble with this idea of the resurrection of Jesus. Even some who would be followers of Jesus and Christians go, "Ah, I'm just not sure, right? Maybe people even can acknowledge, okay, yes, Jesus was an actual person. Um, He existed. I mean, it's awfully hard to ignore the, the historical and archaeological evidence on that one. But They might say that. They might say, okay, sure, Jesus was crucified. But come on, do intelligent people in the 21st century still believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? I mean, isn't that kind of a fairy tale? And I get it. Like, I get it. Especially if if you 
wonder that or think that. I get it. I understand that perspective. But, but for me, um, just one, just one of many reasons, but one of the reasons that I believe that Jesus actually did rise from the dead is found in part of the story that we just read right here. Now, if you know anything about how women were treated back in that day, in that era, it was pretty awful. Um, actually did a series of messages last year, about a year ago, uh, on women in the Bible and how they were treated in the Bible. Um, and actually, our plan in a couple weeks is to begin doing a discover group for about a month where we're going to look at what the Bible actually teaches about women in leadership, in ministry. We're going to look at some of those confusing passages um, Anybody interested in knowing what those things meant? Okay, I hope to see you there and bring some people. Um, but you can come and get a snapshot of that over those four weeks, or you can also listen back for shorter versions um, in our podcast from last May. But, but overall, women in Jesus' day, while he was alive, they were treated by the men in that culture as property. Um, they were viewed as actually less than the men, less value. They were marginalized. They were sidelined. They were overlooked, but Jesus, as we'll look at in our Discover group, he did many things to raise the status and, and the value of women, to, to, to really turn on its head the cultural things that were being done to women. Um, and sadly, 2,000 years later, the church that Jesus founded still has some work to do around how we treat women. Amen. Okay, but I digress. Um, so back up here. Jesus was crucified on a Friday, early Sunday morning. Think of this, and I'm not male bashing, uh, but while 10 of the male disciples were huddled up in a house trying to save themselves from suffering the same fate, because remember, part of the strategy of, being cru of crucifying someone was to intimidate them. So they were intimidated. They were scared, understandably. But it was a group of courageous women and, and Luke, the book of Luke actually gives three names and says, and several other women. So several women actually went to visit the tomb early Easter morning. Again, Jesus had been telling his disciples for months, all this stuff's going to happen, that he was going to be crucified, rise again on the third day. But the women were the ones that actually came to visit the tomb to maybe even check out the story, right? In Matthew 28, we hear this resurrection story from a different perspective with a few more details. Um, what happens is the women found the tomb empty and they encountered excited angels. So they run back, right, like Mary did, run back to tell the cowering, hiding, fearful men, guys, listen, the stone was rolled away. Jesus is gone. And basically, the men hear this story from the women and they say, fake news, right? They just ignore it, right? They're just like, whatever, this is not happening. This didn't happen. I'll just, right? And they ignore the women. In fact, only Peter and John, they're the only two that even bother to see if there's any truth in the story. And the other apostles apparently refuse to believe anything. And like I said, um, Peter and John, they see this empty tomb. They're confused. They return home. But Mary Magdalene, who hangs around, she's the first to encounter the risen Christ. And Jesus tells her, go and tell my disciples like she's the apostle to the apostles, go deliver the good news that he has risen. Now, if we were first century readers to whom this story was originally written, we would see um, that this is really significant to have Mary as that first one to bear witness to this. Because in those days, in those days, in that culture, 
Women were not allowed to serve as witnesses in legal proceedings whatsoever. Um, For example, if someone committed a murder and there were 100 women that watched it happen, um, but there was no man there, then it didn't matter. That person would go scot-free, right? Women weren't seen as trustworthy or believable. And by the way, guess who made up those rules? (laughs) Right, men. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I think it's one of the, one of the marks of authority, uh, the authenticity of the resurrection um, for the historians that study these sorts of things. That One of the reasons they say we can trust these accounts of the resurrection is because nobody in the first century would have made up a story where women were the witnesses. They weren't allowed to be witnesses. So, so, so it would never be in there if it hadn't actually happened that way. So if Christians were trying to fake the news of the resurrection, if it was a scam, they would have never admitted that women were the first eyewitnesses. But they are. They are the first witnesses of the resurrection. See, in Jesus, we see a new day for women. One where he exposes the, the, the unjust things in the culture and turns it on its head. And he leaves no room for anyone to wonder if Jesus or God value women as much as men. Which again is just one of the reasons that I believe that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. Now back to our story here. Mary Magdalene, she goes back to the disciples again, and she tells them now, it's not just that his body's gone, now I've actually seen him, and she passes along the message. Now, in upcoming weeks of this series here, we're going to come back to the story of what happened next, which gets inserted in the book of Luke. Um, If we piece together the different accounts, what happens, so that's Easter morning. That afternoon, Jesus decides to go for a walk uh, with two of his followers. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're headed to Emmaus, and they don't know it's Jesus, though, at first, walking with them. And that's a crazy good story. We're going to come back to that soon. So So Jesus takes this walk uh, and then the next thing we find is that evening, um, he must have figured he'd had his disciples in enough suspense. So he lets them in on the truth that he is alive. So let's pick up the story in Luke 24, verse 36. While they, these are the disciples who walked on the road to Emmaus, while they were still talking about this with the other disciples, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat, right? They give him a piece of broiled fish, and he takes it and eats it in their presence uh, while they watch, right? While they're watching, says one version. Now, this is just a fabulous scene, again, right? Can you imagine being in the room when this took place? These disciples are freaked out. They can't imagine that this actually has happened. It was almost like they were afraid to get their hopes up. The text says that they stood there doubting filled with joy and wonder. I mean, imagine Nathaniel whispering to Bartholomew, hey, Bart, Bart, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Like, is this real? Like, wait, is something going on here? And Jesus, he understands their doubt and that they're blown away to now see him alive. 
So he shows him nail-pierced hands and feet, and they still think he's a ghost or a spirit or something. So he says, Jesus says, listen, guys, I, I, I'm not a ghost. I'm real. I'm back. I'm alive. My body is made new. It's real. Go ahead, touch me. Go ahead, touch me. Still not sure? Okay, fine. What do you got to eat around here? Okay, sweet. I'm hungry. Give me some fish, right? And he starts eating it, and it says that they stood there watching Jesus eat. And I think that maybe that is when all the doubt disappeared And instead of being doubt with joy and wonder, it was just pure joy and wonder, right? Jesus is back. He's back. He he rose from the dead just like he said that he would. They were convinced. They were convinced. Now, there's more to the story of what else happened after Jesus rose from the dead. But I want to pause on this part of the story and why I think that it's important as well. See, Jesus took these deliberate steps to make sure that his followers knew he was actually alive. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't an apparition. He was really alive. And again, I understand why some people think, come on, really, man? You're like, you buy that story? And I'll admit, while it does sound too good to be true, um, but history, history tells us about the disciples and the followers of Jesus. And friends, they were either in on the world's biggest hoax or they actually believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, like they actually saw it and believed it, or they were all in on this weird conspiracy. Um, The Apostle Paul, who wasn't in the room for this, he was not even a believer yet, Uh, he started out as a religious zealot. He thought he was defending the true faith, the Jewish faith, by killing Christians. But he meets Jesus and he changes teams. He becomes a Christian, becomes an apostle, and is responsible for writing much of what we call the New Testament. Now, there was no benefit for him to make that move. None. If Jesus wasn't real, there was no benefit at all. Because now, after he did that, the Jews hated him, and it took a long time for the Christians to even trust him at all. And so Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, It's in 1 Corinthians, but he cites evidence of the resurrection. And here's how he describes this this passage, this this event in what is a wonderful passage of ancient literature. Verse 3, Paul says in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he says, I passed on to you what was most important and had also been passed to me. Christ died for our sins, right? He's saying he was buried. Before that, in verse 4, he says he was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, right? And then we go on, and it says he appeared to Peter, and it says he appeared to the disciples. Uh, Next slide. After that, in verse 6, it says he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And it says here, interesting phrase, most of whom are still living. Though some have died. Then he appeared to James, it says, that's Jesus' brother. Then to the apostles, and last of all, he had appeared to Paul. Now, if you look at that phrase there, um, historians agree, whether they're Christian historians or not, that, 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 that Paul wrote these words, that this book, this letter was written, they can back it up with archaeology and all kinds of records, that he wrote this letter about 20 years after the death of Jesus. So within a generation of Jesus rising from the dead. And what he does here, when Paul deliberately lists these names, um, he says, hey, Peter saw Jesus after the resurrection, and then the disciples did, and there were 500 men and women at the same time. He says, and some of them are dead, although, listen, most of them are still alive. 
Now, the point of why that's important is this. Paul is writing, hey, listen, friends, if you don't believe me that Jesus rose from the dead, you can go ask one of them, the people who were the eyewitnesses who saw it. Go check it out. See, Paul would not have written that. He wouldn't have said that this close to the resurrection time if people couldn't actually go do that and talk to the people that had been eyewitnesses, right? He never would have written that in there. So in other words, whether you, um, whatever you think, whether you believe it or not, the resurrection was not intended by the Apostle Paul or any of these disciples or folks, these followers of Jesus. It wasn't supposed to just be understood as, as a metaphor. Oh, Jesus' resurrection was this metaphor or it was this symbol, right? Oh, it was just so poetical. It didn't really happen, but just a beautiful poem, right? No, they, they believed it was historical that it really happened. In fact, it's the only explanation of how the church ended up getting started after their Messiah gets crucified. Like no church, no movement would start after a crucifixion, except this one did because their Messiah rose, this Messiah rose from the dead. In fact, they are so convinced, these believers who saw Jesus, they're so convinced of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, of what they had seen with their own eyes, that many of them ended up dying as martyrs rather than recant their testimony of seeing the risen Jesus. Now, if this whole thing, again, if this whole thing was a lie, like if the disciples just made it up, what kind of person would perpetuate a known lie? Like, you'd have to be really devious, and a whole bunch of you really devious. But then you'd have to be really crazy, because think about this. Would, would all the disciples face hardship and death to just prop up a known lie? Right? Historical records and reports about the disciples indicated that they all, except for the Apostle John, um, the rest of them all died cruel deaths for holding to their belief in Jesus. Uh, James was stoned to death. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Thaddeus was killed with arrows. Matthew and Zebedee faced deaths by the sword. And, and other disciples and believers were crucified. And all they would have had to say was, no, 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 no. Actually, it's not true. We, didn't, we really didn't see him. Then they'd be off the hook. But they didn't. Like these disciples, they died but they wouldn't, they wouldn't have had to die for something that they would have known was not true. They wouldn't have died for something if they thought it was a lie. But, but they knew it was true because they had seen the risen Jesus. And what's amazing now, you think about this, the result of what they saw in the resurrection of Jesus is, is, is that this movement is a movement without precedent in the history of the world. It has swept the whole known world. There is no parallel to this movement of followers of Jesus. And it's still happening. There are 2,300 million Christians in the world today. 2.3 billion Christians. Right? Every ethnicity, every continent, every nationality, every economic, social, and intellectual background. And all of them, all of us, can also speak of an encounter uh, in a different way with this risen Jesus. And friends, like I could, I could list a bunch of reasons. Like I had all kinds of stuff, um, all kinds of reasons why, why I would say that it's not far-fetched to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. See, there's lots of great arguments from, from brilliant people. Um, actually, there are great arguments on both sides, those that believe and don't. 
And it's good. It's so good to study. It's good to use your brain. It's good to think through all of this stuff. Like, I think that the evidence is important because, because it does. It points us in the direction to be able to say, you know what? It looks like it's true that Jesus is the Son of God who rose from the dead. Like, I think the evidence, much more than I listed in just a few minutes there, there's so much more, but I think the evidence is really strong. And while I appreciate good doctrine, good theology, and good apologetics, the truth is none of those things are really at the top of the list of why I believe that Jesus is real, why I believe that Jesus is alive, why I believe that Jesus exists today. See, because if somebody that was, you know, wanted to debate me that was smarter than me, which wouldn't take much, right, to be smarter than me, okay, we all get that. Um, But if they wanted to debate me on the existence of Jesus and proofs and all that, like, listen, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be the smartest guy on the debate stage. And so while I'm glad that there is great evidence for Jesus' existence, my belief today about Jesus being who he claimed to be is based now on the fact that that I know him. Like, I've known him for most of my life. And I have a personal relationship with him. It's not just a belief in all the facts. We have a connection, right? So it's, it's a both and thing, right? I think the evidence is important, but ultimately our relationship with God is how we can really know that it's true. Not just in our heads, but in our hearts, in all of us. See, for me, over decades of following Jesus, through good times in my life and hard times, um, through times where I can celebrate and other times that were very painful, Uh, Following Jesus through times where I feel tons of doubt. Is he real? Is this worth it? What is going on? And other times where I know that I know that I know that he is close to me. Through all of that, here is one thing that I know for certain. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. Yeah, there's this old chorus. Yeah. Remember that old praise chorus we sang when I was young, growing up in church. The words went like this. Jesus is the sweetest name I know, and he's just the same as his lovely name. That's the reason why I love him so, for Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And so if you were to ask me if he's real, and you were to ask me to prove it, Yeah, I could do the apologetics thing, but probably what I'd really want to do is tell you stories from my life. Stories of how Jesus has been close to me, how Jesus has shown me what love and grace actually are. Uh, Where Jesus in my life has shown me forgiveness, where he in other places in my life has given me new beginnings into shattered and broken places, that Jesus did that. (laughs) He worked things together for my Good. See, Jesus has been the one who healed my heart from excruciatingly painful things that I never thought I could recover from. And he continues to heal my heart today and bring me more and more wholeness because Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And for me, that's how I know that I know that I know. Now back to the character we started this message with, Mary Magdalene. I wonder if she'd say the same thing. I wonder if she would say, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. He, he changed my life, and I love him. I read this excerpt. Bless you. 
I read an excerpt from a, a writer named Andy Lee this week, and it, it just got me thinking and helped me reimagine what it was like for Mary Magdalene when she showed up on Easter morning. I, imagine the scene that we read just at the top of this service here. We're at the beginning of the message. We read from John 20. Just imagine it, right? Mary Magdalene was desperate. Probably she hadn't been able to sleep again. She was consumed with grief and sorrow all night. She waited and waited and waited until she could wait no more. The sky was still dark. Maybe perhaps there was a hint of light that began to signal the start of a new day that finally Sabbath mercifully was over. She could finally do what she knew had to be done. She could finally go to Jesus' tomb and be present to the one who had restored her honor and set her free. And even though she was weary, Magdalene would be the first one to the tomb. She knew exactly where they'd placed him and she had a job to do. She was gonna prepare his body properly for burial with spices, at least (laughs) that was her plan. Perhaps though, maybe, maybe she just needed to see Jesus one more time. Maybe she needed closure. (laughs) But Mary Magdalene would not find a dead Jesus. When we read the verses to this, we just kind of zip right through what happened. But if we just slow down and use our imaginations to just wonder what this encounter looked like. Think about this, right? She's the first one that that he appears to as the resurrected Messiah. This is gonna be an exciting, breathtaking moment, but, but let's just picture the scene as it unfolds. Andy Lee wonders, with every fiber in her being, Mary Magdalene begged the gardener to tell her where he had moved her beloved rabbi. Many would have dismissed her that day, claiming she had lost her mind again. But Jesus didn't let that be the case. After her plea for knowledge of his location, Jesus opened her eyes to his presence. He didn't blind her as he would Saul of Tarsus one day. No, no, he gently opened her eyes by calling her name, Mary. Mary. He didn't add on Magdalene, just Mary. He called her Mary. And let's just sit in that moment for a little bit. Again, the scripture just keeps rolling and it's exciting. But to, sw- to savor this sweet moment in the story, I think is a beautiful thing. So, so while Mary saw, you know, the gardener, she had turned her face from him and she just, it said in another text, it says she just glanced at him and she asked oh, where they moved her rabbi. Maybe she only glanced at the gardener because she didn't want him to see her face as she'd been sobbing and crying for days. Maybe she didn't want the gardener to see her face. But Jesus, he didn't need to see her face to know who she was. See, Mary hadn't recognized Jesus. Perhaps he looked different after the beating, after the crucifixion, or after the resurrection. And although she didn't recognize him with the quick glance she gave, um, don't you wonder that at first, maybe she would have recognized his voice because he does ask a question. But she didn't recognize his voice with the question. She recognized his voice 
when he called her by name. By name, he called her. And at the sound of Jesus saying her name, Mary, she turned around to see the one for whom she'd desperately been searching and grieving over. Her heart and mind would never be the same. Looking at this scene and the scene where she first met Jesus, now he's saved her twice, both times, ironically, in the tombs. The first time when he, years before, had cast those seven demons out of her in the presence of death and insanity. And he'd restored her once to Mary called Magdalene, but this time he restored her simply as Mary. He just called her name Mary. See, Mary's name was restored that day. It was restored just by Jesus saying her name. And friends, Jesus knows your name too. He calls your name. Can you imagine him calling your name? What would it, what would it sound like when he calls Jim, Debbie, Stacy, David, when Jesus calls Tracy, Mark, when Jesus calls your name, what would you imagine it sounds like? See, friends, you have been chosen by God. It doesn't matter how smart or talented or beautiful or sane, apparently, you are. Um, but just listen. Learn to listen for for his voice. See, Jesus is calling your name still. And he calls us and his call heals us. His call of our name frees us. It redeems us forever. And it changes everything. It changes everything. When we respond, when we call his name, when he calls our name, it changes everything and gives us a purpose. Jim, will you... Uh, Will you come? Again, just remember back to the start of this message. Here's Mary. First one to see the empty tomb. First one then to encounter the resurrected Jesus. What a story. What a story. What a woman. What a person for God to pick to be the first one. This, this lady who'd once been filled with seven demons. I mean, today we'd likely diagnose her as schizophrenic. But this, this formerly demon-possessed Mary Magdalene was the chosen one. She was called to go to the disciples to proclaim the news that Jesus was alive. She was chosen to deliver that important message. And it just makes me wonder, does the story of Mary Magdalene give any of us hope? Does it give us hope that no matter our past or present, no matter our history, our failures, or our shame, no matter what we, were, we once were, we too can serve God in a mighty way? We look at God picking and calling and using and choosing her. And even with that, I ask this question and I wonder, why is she the first one, right? The first one that Jesus encounters. Why? Why was she chosen? And plenty of people guess it, and there's probably really valid, wonderful, legitimate guesses, but I wonder if it could be this simple. She was chosen. Maybe she was chosen because she was looking for Jesus. She was still looking for his body. She was there. She stayed. She 
waited. She was seeking Jesus. I mean, the text says that Peter and John, right? They went back home. And I hate to admit it, but I'm afraid that I probably would have walked back home with Peter and John, confused, dejected, trying to figure out, great, what do we do now? But not Mary, not Mary. She was looking for Jesus. And now we hold her up as a hero, right? Somebody that we can look up to, that we can wonder about, that we can follow her example. And deep in our hearts, I think if we're honest, I think any of us, all of us maybe, can relate to this woman in one way or another. Like some of us go, yep, I understand having issues, right? (laughs) Um, Or I understand feeling disqualified. And those of us who have encountered Jesus, maybe we relate to her because we go, oh, yes. (laughs) Just like Mary, I want to serve Jesus. Just like her, I want to be near Jesus. Or maybe you can relate to Mary because in your life, in your story, that even in your confusion, even in our pain, we can relate to clinging to a desperate faith when all seems hopeless and lost. So we can relate because in times of confusion or hurt or addiction or betrayal or pain or loss or the death of someone that we love or the death of a marriage, we can look to Jesus. We can cling to Jesus just like Mary because Jesus is the sweetest name we know.